Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Well, it's been a tumultuous year. It's been a year of raised geopolitical risks, higher interest rates, higher inflation, higher commodity prices, and supply chain disruption. Against this backdrop, businesses have had to deal with a higher cost of capital and to think carefully about their capital allocation decisions and funding requirements. In China, Mr. Xi has seemingly consolidated power and whose autocratic instincts are at odds with much of the Anglo-Saxon world. Now, there was plenty to worry about, and much of this was reflected in asset prices. The overall consensus points to a slowing and even contracting economic landscape next year. Elsewhere, there have been blow-ups at the more speculative end of the market. For example, the crypto exchange FTX filing for bankruptcy, calling into question the validity of the controls and regulatory oversight of much crypto complex. And here in the UK, we have relearned what political risk looks like with three prime ministers, two sovereigns, and a bond market that resembles that of an emerging market in the 90s. Now to review this year, I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant Charlie Jones, our very own global equity manager. And in this episode, we draw out some of the key investment themes of the year, and he reluctantly makes his predictions for next year, 2023. Now, Charlie did not want to discuss politics, which was fair enough, and is also lucky because in the next episode, we have the political editor of The Sun, Harry Cole, coming on to discuss the shifting sands of UK politics. Now, 2022 has been a good one for the podcast, and I must thank everyone involved this year, in particular, our award-winning marketing manager and producer, Laura Hammond, and our brilliant and patient editor Dougie at the podcast editor. We've had some great guests from the broadcaster Claire Boulding to the king of value investing Richard Oldfield, from Rory Stewart to the historian Dr. Mary Wellesley to the journalist Sarah Sands. We've had some buzzing entrepreneurs including Freddie Ford, Nidhi and Sahil Verma, Thomasina Myers and Freddie Lloyd George. To all of you, thank you. And of course, to our listeners who are growing in numbers. Have a very happy Christmas. This is the Why Invest podcast. Charlie Jones, welcome back to the podcast. Now, Charlie, it's our job over the next half an hour or so to try and unpick and unravel some of the events from 2022. Now, I want to try and do this by splitting it into two. First, by talking about the top-down sort of macro factors, and then move on to talking about the bottom-up and sort of company-driven factors and things that we're seeing on the ground. So let's start with the macro. And I'm going to ask a potentially controversial question, which is, what is the point in macro predictions? Because if you look at 2022, it feels a bit like policymakers, talking heads, pundits, and indeed markets seem to have been way off this year. Why is that? And is it because we're in a new regime? Well, thank you very much for having me back on the podcast, Doug. I'm delighted to be asked to comment on 2022, which is without doubt the most complicated year I think I've invested (laughs) in. So good that you're going to keep me on my toes. Um, In terms of macro forecasting, I mean, I think the reason we do it and um, why it's so popular is, well, one, there's a whole industry that's paid to do it. And two, perhaps more importantly, it's very hard to explain to your client that you don't have a view on where the world's going when they're paying you to invest money based on where the world's going. It's sort of like 
you know, if you're an engineer and someone says, can you design me a jet engine? The response is, yes, of course. I don't actually know how to design you a jet engine. It's a bit awkward. It puts your clients off. Um, so I think the reason we do it is clients expect it. In terms of why we're collectively not very good at it, well, I think there are a few factors. One, it's incredibly complicated. You've got a system with thousands of feedback loops, thousands of input variables. You're trying to map out the responsiveness of consumers and individuals who you know, have different motivations that are not always economic. In terms of the last three years, I think 2020, there was a, an expectation from analysts that the market would would rise by about 3%. It actually went up 16 yeah, 2021, I think it was 10%, and the market actually went up 27. Year to date, or 22, the prediction was a 5% increase in the S&P 500, and the uh, market's down 17% year to date. So a pretty spectacularly bad set of outcomes. <laughs> and I think, so final thing I'd probably add is it's not just that it's a complicated system. The market is a system in itself that's trying to predict what the system will do anyway. So not only do you have to predict the economy, uh, how that feeds into company profits, how that feeds into investor expectations. You've got a, a whole industry of very clever people also trying to outbet you on the same expectation pricing. Well, this actually brings in uh, Howard Marks' point in a recent letter. I thought it was very interesting, his main argument being, you know, even if you can predict with a high degree of certainty where inflation is, where economic growth is, where interest rates are. That's kind of only part of the picture. That's like your first order effect. What is harder and what you need to do to make money is predict the secondary effect, the market effect, and the market's sort of reaction to said first effect. So it's, I can understand the, the complexity. Maybe another way of thinking about this is that this has been a year, or it feels like this is a year where, where labor is fighting back against capital. You know, since the financial crisis, you've had, if you earned stuff, you did badly. And if you own stuff, you did really well. And owning stuff that could have been equities, bonds, houses, etc. Is 2022 the sort of starting point to that dynamic correcting, perhaps? I mean, asking if it's the starting point, perhaps, is, is asking me to make a prediction now that just <laughs> indicated that I, I don't think it's a, a very successful thing to be doing. I think the challenge for the labor supply is always significant post a pandemic. So in a pandemic, you have, well, some of your workforce, unfortunately, might die, depending on the severity of the pandemic and who it targets. In this pandemic, actually, it's probably been less about that sort of departure from the labor force, but more people taking early retirement, working from home has, has changed working patterns. And so you've had a, a reduction in the participation rate in the economy. So just fewer workers go to work as a percentage of the working age population than you had in 2019. I think on the other side of that, you've got this trend in America and the West generally called nearshoring or reshoring, where because the pandemic exposed supply chain weaknesses, Companies have been trying to become more resilient. They've wanted more localized supply so that they didn't have to pay ludicrous freight fees or you know, there was maybe a, a COVID outbreak at a Chinese port and so you couldn't get your goods. And so they're trying to manufacture a little bit more domestically again than perhaps had been the case, particularly in America. Unfortunately, on the other side of that, you've had a, a sort of 40-year hollowing out of skilled manufacturing labor 
And so you've got this sort of skills mismatch where plenty of, of workers are capable of manning a phone at a reception desk and probably not nearly as many as they used to be can weld at the same time as you've also had a, a reduction in the labor force. So you've had two factors. Um, do they continue? I think they probably do. I think American management teams that I speak to think it's permanent that the 30-year drive towards greater efficiency and profitability through globalization perhaps has gone a bit far and reintroducing some redundancy into the system and a bit more resilience is a good thing. So I think whether or not it's it's a wholesale shift or, or just a sort of steady rotation back, I'm not sure, but I think it, it probably is here to stay. We've kind of moved from just-in-time to just-in-case production. Okay, well, let's try and work out what the secondary effect that is. I mean, that is a big theme that we've seen uh, moving back and, and building resiliency in one supply chain. I mean, can one make the case that perhaps this is short-term inflationary, long-term disinflationary? Because you're building, you are building out quite a lot more capacity now. I think so. I mean, a, a really good case study is probably what's happening in the semiconductor market, where I think there's something like $300 billion of committed capex to building semiconductor capacity in America, which is great. But obviously, if you're going to add that capacity, you need to find demand to fill it. And maybe demand does come through to fill it naturally, as in over the 10 years it takes to build out that capacity, that the demand for semiconductors grows by the same amount. But in the short term, America doesn't really have a significant semiconductor manufacturing capability anymore it used to uh, particularly in the 90s it, it was the world's largest producer of semiconductors and it's still meaningful but it, it's certainly not leading anymore and that's taiwan but in the short term you've got huge inflationary pressure from more construction workers to actually build the factories you've got the factory supply chains to supply the equipment that requires sort of capacity expansion as well and so short term very definitely likely to be inflationary but you're right i think long term that industry will have probably surplus supply and plenty of other industries are undergoing the same process at the moment. And I suppose that would turn to a related factor, which really has raised its ugly head recently or this year, and that is, of course, geopolitical risk. How, first of all, do markets price geopolitical risk? And how do we as investors measure it? Because it seems like it's a very intangible risk and something that, you know, it's very difficult to stick in someone's model. I think the way that most investors handle political risk is almost binary of it's too difficult, I'm not going to invest somewhere, or they're quite happy to take it on. Maybe they're more familiar with the country, maybe they're more relaxed about it. So I think from an individual investor perspective, that, that's how people cope. In terms of pricing it in, if it's severe geopolitical risk like nuclear war, I don't think investors do tend to even bother to price it in because if it happens, most of them won't be working in investments anymore. They'll probably be being drafted into the armed forces and so they don't really care. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the most wonderful research piece that came out end of February, beginning of March, I can't remember which bank it was, but entitled, there's been a significant increase in risk of nuclear war. Stay invested in equities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I suppose the collective outcome of all of this is that it's very much countries which, you know, whether it's perceived to be greater political risk, just start to price in a discount to the rest of the world and it doesn't change. But I think on an individual investor basis, you know, it's just some investors leave and some stay. But I don't think an individual investor thinks if they're happy to invest in Taiwan now and they were, you know, five years ago, they probably don't worry so much about it and they'd still pay the same price. Mm -hmm. 
and turning to the the energy complex. There are stocks in the energy complex that you kind of had to earn to outperform this year. And I'm just wondering how have ESG factors changed throughout the year of 2022, given the focus on, on energy security? I mean, it's that awful phrase that, you know, often sassy teenagers hit back with of first world problems in that your concerns for the environmental well-being of the planet are very material. But obviously, if you can't feed yourself next week or you can't heat your house tomorrow and you might freeze to death, you probably don't worry about the CO2 you know, emissions rate that affects temperature in 20 years time. And I think for the first time in a long time, reasonably well off Western consumers are feeling a price squeeze that, you know, certainly since the financial crisis, they haven't really felt. And then in many cases since the 1970s. And I think that's just changed consumer focus back towards perhaps more immediate problems that they're facing. And energy security in particular is one. From an investor perspective, I think that's probably also happened. There's also bluntly a commercial concern of if you vetoed fossil fuel investment a year ago, you've been absolutely destroyed relative to the stock market this year. And so I think there's an element of maybe a more sophisticated approach to balancing environmental risks on the one hand and social risks on the other going forward. What's also complicated is some of the best stocks from an environmental perspective carry significant social cost and vice versa. So it's actually quite a hard balancing act. Well, no doubt that conversation will rumble on into 2023. I want to turn, if we can, to bottom up. And I suppose a good way of linking this is through a conversation we had. We have a, a regular update from one of our brokers who comes in on a quarterly basis. And he gives us a sort of thorough report, both linking the top down to the bottom up and talks through some of his stock ideas. And there's always a sort of internal joke that he talks about this being a stock picker's market. And we always think, well, a stockbroker should probably always say that it's a stock picker's market. However, his most recent quarterly update, he talked about this being a macro-driven market. And, you know, the macro trumps the micro in terms of fundamentals. And I wonder if you can comment on the degree to which that's true and if you felt the macro trumping the micro. Or is this just a case of markets getting used to a sort of higher inflation, higher interest rates and a normalized cost of capital? So I think the best way to try and answer this is if we think of the value of an equity or the stock market as being a function of its profits and then a function of how much return you expect to achieve from your investment, which in turn is tied to interest rates and inflation. This year, corporate profitability hasn't really been in question because going into the year, consumers were loaded up with savings that they had accumulated through the pandemic. And uh, not only was the government helping give them cash, they weren't able to spend it because they were locked inside rather than going on holiday. And so no one's really worried about a slowdown in spending and therefore profitability to an extent. I mean, they're not perfectly tied, but that, that's roughly true. However, where all of the uncertainty has resided has been, what is the inflation figure in the short term? How does that feed into a medium-term projection for inflation? And then in turn, how does the Federal Reserve respond? So through the year, we've had four months where companies have reported results, and by and large, they've been sort of mostly in line, you know, to perhaps to some commentators' surprise. But in between those four months where corporate results were largely as expected, 
you've had huge gyrations in the expectations for the inflation outlook based on inflation data, particularly in the US, and then how the Federal Reserve has responded. So largely what the inflation data release showed in the US each month affected the market performance for that month quite meaningfully. Whereas on an individual stock basis, um, you know, there wasn't that much to discern between the profitability of different businesses on a one-year view. I mean, can one make the case that actually any company that has kind of steady earnings growth or earnings trajectory, a line of sight of decent cash generation, would probably have outperformed versus the kind of so-called tomorrow stocks where cash is generated way out in the future? And, you know, you can kind of see that in terms of, I mean, this year to me, it feels like it's been as much about avoiding the bear traps as it has been by owning you know, decent quality companies? Well, I think the first nine months of the year were different to the last sort of couple of months we've had. I know we're not quite at year end, but it probably the fourth quarter will be different. I think in the first nine months, you had this sort of rotation that investors call style from growth stocks, which are those sort of tomorrow stocks, you know, the ARK Innovation ETF type favored names into value stocks, which on the whole are, you know, pretty cyclical, not that profitable businesses, so miners and oil companies and banks and so on. And I think what really drives that is just if interest rates are higher, the value of the money you're going to be paid in the future is lower. And conversely, the £100 today in high interest rate environments is more valuable than being paid £100 in five years' time because you can invest it today and get the interest over those five years. So that's driven the first nine months. I think what's happened since is in the last two months, there have been much greater concerns that central banks were going to cause a recession and a recession would lead to negative profit expectations. And that's driven a greater focus on earnings resilience. So not how cash generative you are as such, but how stable are your earnings. And also, do you need capital markets? You know, if you're heavily indebted or if you're not indebted, but you need to issue equity every year in order to fund your growth, you know, I think investors are shying away from those. So the first nine months, it was sort of value into growth. The last two has been a bit more what we'd call quality focused, where investors want to buy resilience in the equity market. I wonder, Charlie, if we can do a quick thought experiment. And let's pretend you're able to close your eyes, shut your ears to everything that's coming from the news channels and everything that you're reading in on a daily basis on Bloomberg and only focus on company guidance, earnings announcements and what companies are actually saying and doing. Do you think you would be more bearish or more bullish on economic growth? Well, I suppose we should probably caveat this with I would never do this because the (laughs) the last people to admit that things are going wrong in their own business is company management. So they will always be perennially optimistic about their own prospects. I think the general sense I have had from the management teams I've spoken to is that a lot of the disruption caused by lockdowns and, and the pandemic is sort of coming out of the system now. It feels like freight's normalizing input costs are normalizing, even energy's come down a bit, and actually business from a cost side is getting much easier. That in turn probably helps them assume that inflation will fall. If inflation falls, you would then assume that consumers will be slightly better off and be able to keep spending, in which case you've got a a cost falling, revenue growth remains all right. You probably become more bullish and more optimistic. 
What areas of the market are you most worried about at this juncture? And I suppose a related question is, you know, why haven't we seen a swathe of bankruptcies like you would normally see in an economic slowdown? Well, two factors, and I should probably also note that bankruptcies are finally ticking up. They've been low for some time, but actually in the last few months, there's, there's been an acceleration in bankruptcies. I think the reason it's taken so long for that to happen is the starting point for many of these businesses was actually not that bad. I mean, a really good example would be the rates holiday in the UK. And I think it's in January that the rates holiday comes to an end. So there've actually been a lot of costs not tied to debt that the government's helped businesses avoid and postpone for the future. I think when these costs come back in, and they'll have to you'll see a rapid pickup in bankruptcies then, I think the other thing to be mindful of is is for many small and medium-sized businesses, not the ones we tend to buy in the stock market, but you know the ones that actually make up the majority of an economy, are still enjoying some of the best revenue growth they've had for years, partly driven by inflation. And as long as you've got cash coming in, you can usually keep borrowing or keep paying off your debt. It's if there's a slowdown in that cash coming into the business that the bankruptcies pick up. So I suppose that's why people expect the recession to be the real driver of bankruptcies, high interest rates might cause them to start going up before a recession actually happens. But I think the wave would, would probably come if a recession occurs. And how's the role of the regulator changed, do you think, this year? And has the regulators perhaps been more hawkish? And I don't know, you can point to a number of M&A deals that didn't go through. Do you think that the, the sort of competition commissions across the world are becoming more interventionist? I think so. I think there are two factors why. One is the market power that the FANGs evidently demonstrated, I guess really up until this year, over a 10-year period, caused a lot of accusations to be leveled against the regulator that they've been asleep at the wheel. I mean, if you think of Facebook acquiring Instagram, um, Facebook and Instagram ended up being the two largest social media platforms in the in the West. And I think there was an element of, well, why didn't you predict this could happen? You know, why did you let them buy out their biggest competitors? So so I think there's an element of nervousness on the account of the, the competition authorities to allow any deal to go through now in case the same thing happens. I think the other element is there's a, a geopolitical element. I think we've seen a rising number of US mergers where the US companies had Chinese operations and therefore needed approval from the Chinese Competition Commission to merge. And even though they seemed fairly insignificant to us, several deals have been abandoned or rejected for not that obvious market reasons, but quite obvious political reasons if, if you choose to interpret it that way. So I think there are, there are two factors. I think it makes um, M&A more difficult going forward, which um, as a stock picker actually makes me quite happy. I think usually M&A is beneficial for the investment bank that's uh, orchestrated it and not always for the shareholder. So now, Charlie, given that you don't like macro forecasting and given what you're sort of seeing on a bottom-up basis, how are you approaching 2023? And you know, bearing in mind it is part of your job to make investment decisions. What's driving your thought process at the moment? And how are you, um, you know, positioning portfolios? I have to tread very carefully here not to upset other people. That would, um, <laughs> we can keep that in if you like. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it to you in Laura's discretion. I mean, I suppose that the simple answer is I slightly cheat in that 
by being a bottom-up stock picker, I outsource the complexity of the environment we're in to the management of the businesses we invest in. So at the end of every shareholder letter out, I, I leave a sort of four-line process summary in which I think is important. And so A, going into 2023, I'll stick, try and stick to the process. B, the process should work. It basically says find companies which have got a good starting hand in that they're more durable or whatever. Find businesses where there's a, a reasonable prize if they win and that the opportunity is good. You, you'll make some money if they do a good job. And find, most importantly, management teams who are skilled and able to adapt to whatever 2023 throws at them. And so that hasn't really changed from 22 or 21. I think what has changed is the price I'm willing to pay for an investment has varied depending on what risks I'm facing. So risks going into 2022 that worried me were interest rate risk was a big one that, that weighed on me. Uh, capital allocation risk at the time, money was still free. So the risk of a company buying you know, another business or launching on some new project that cost a fortune and delivered no return was high. And supply chain risk was another very big one a year ago. Companies you know, just not receiving parts and not being able to sell. And so having missed sales was quite a big risk. And so the kind of discount to the price I was willing to pay was was driven by those sorts of factors. I think now uh, those factors worry me perhaps a bit less. What worries me more on an individual stock basis are things like um, labor relations. You know, I think we're probably fairly early on in how bad strikes could get if inflation remains where it is. And putting a greater discount on the price I'm willing to pay for a business with a unionized labor force, say. And so it's not that I wouldn't buy a company with a unionized labor force. I just want to try and get it more cheaply than I could have done before. And then finally, at a portfolio level, make sure I don't take too many extreme bets because the probability of me being wrong is high. And so make sure that when I am wrong, it doesn't finish me off. That sounds very sensible. I want to hear, I am going to push you on this, Jolly, because I think uh, I know how reluctant I can hear it in the size, but I'm going to push you on your most controversial prediction for 2023. It's actually quite hard to think of something controversial, not because I don't want to contribute something, but because if you think how varied expectations are, as in if I say, oh, I think the market's going to be up 30%, there are probably 25% of all investors say that's not controversial at all. We think that. And conversely, if I you know, say it's going to fall 30%, there are probably another 25% of investors think the same. So the distribution of outcomes is wide at the moment. Distribution of it's very Maybe wide. it's controversial to say, yeah, no, no, no 2% earnings growth. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, th- I, I think that would probably almost be the most controversial thing I could say is that the market just goes sideways and does nothing. And next year, it turns out to be incredibly boring, despite everything that's been built. It's hardly good entertainment for you, though, Doug. <laughs> sideways is fine. Sideways is good. It's slightly cheating. I'm going to pinch someone else's, but I actually liked it and thought it was, was very good. There's um, a possibility that coal could be designated in the ESG-friendly investment category. <laughs> well, that would keep the um, Indonesians happy, I guess. That would be very controversial. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's uh, it's easy to be controversial when the whole market's pointing one way, but I think at the moment it's actually a bit difficult. What's your most controversial view, Doug? Um, my most controversial view. God, I think about this. Um, my most controversial view is that Elon Musk turns Twitter into a super app. He does it. He succeeds next year. It becomes an all-singing, all-dancing, WeChat-type experience. 
Well, well, I'm a bit terrified if uh, Elon Musk controlled everything I did. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm on that bombshell. Charlie Jones, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Charlie Jones, the Global Equity Manager, also at Waverton. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. Have a very happy Christmas. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.